Imagine a time when a new technology, a new profession was sweeping the world. As a young child, you have a deep desire, a passion for this profession. But you are told from your earliest days until adulthood that this new profession, well, it's just not for you. You're not capable of handling it for one simple reason, the color of your skin. Today I tell the tale of Charles Chief Anderson, who overcame extreme racism to become one of the world's most respected aviators on the 178th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. Thank you so much for being with me today. So how was your breakfast this morning? You know, I was thinking the other day, when I was a kid, my parents made coffee with boiling water. You see, I'm old. We didn't have automatic drip coffee makers and things like that when I was uh, a child. So many of you might have noticed there was a problem with last episode. If you downloaded the 176th episode on Burke and Hare, you probably found you had a repeat of show 175, the one about broadcast signal intrusions. I'm not quite sure how that happened, but I'm very confident it's something that I messed up. So last Sunday, I posted the Burke and Hare show, which came out as show 177. So today is actually my 177th episode, but it will be listed as the 178th show. So I guess from now on, I'm going to be one show off. And I want to thank listener Russell for letting me know about this error. Otherwise, I probably still wouldn't know. I'd also like to thank another listener who not only wrote some wonderful words about my show, but also gave me a couple of good suggestions for future topics. Thanks, Bill. And, um, If I don't use your suggestion right away, don't worry. As other listeners have discovered, I eventually get around to them. It all depends on what I feel like learning about that week. So today's story is a bit long and I'm not going to waste any time and get started. So grab yourself a cup of coffee and get ready to hear the tale of an American hero, a man they called Chief. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. Well, the Postal Service is honoring Tuskegee Airman C. Alfred Anderson. A 70-cent first-class stamp with his likeness was unveiled. Known as Chief Anderson, he has been referred to as the Charles Lindbergh of black aviation for his record-breaking flights that inspired other African Americans to become pilots. Yesterday, community and family members paid tribute. We're just honored that the post office has decided to to pick this up, do a stamp in his likeness, and um, it'll be... It's really somewhat of a, a dedication or acknowledgement of the Tuskegee Airmen. A study by the Army War College on black soldiers published on November 10, 1925 stated that, and I quote, 
It is generally recognized that the pure-blood American Negro is inferior to our white population in mental capacity. All officers, without exception, agree that the Negro lacks initiative, displays little or no leadership, and cannot accept responsibility. Some point out that these defects are greater in the Southern Negro. An opinion held in common by practically all officers is that the Negro is a rank coward in the dark. End quote. That was the mentality of much of the white population in the United States in the early part of the 20th century. Some black Americans sought out to prove this opinion wrong, men like Charles Anderson, better known as Chief Anderson. He was one of those rare individuals who kept fighting for his dream, even though he was constantly told it was impossible due to the color of his skin. He would eventually join a war effort for a country that treated him and his race quite hideously. He was born Charles Alfred Anderson on the 9th of February, 1907 in Bern Mawr, Pennsylvania to Iverson and Janie Anderson. His birth was only a little over three years after the Wright brothers made their first powered flight four miles south of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. By the time Charles was six years old, he was fascinated by both airplanes and flying. He would often sneak out of the house and run away when he heard barnstormers were in the area just so he could catch a glimpse of the flying machine. His father was a caretaker of a large estate used as a private school and owned by a wealthy woman, Mrs. Wright. When Charles received his driver's license at the age of 14, he worked as a chauffeur to Mrs. Wright and began saving for flying lessons. His interest continued through his teenage years, and by the time he was 20 years old, he was ready to begin lessons. But Charles had a problem, and that was the color of his skin. He was African-American, and because of that, he couldn't find anyone who would take him on as a student. He encountered racism everywhere he went. In 1920, he applied to the Drexel Institute Aviation School in Philadelphia. He was denied entry. Next, he went to the United States Army to enter their flight program, but was also rejected, both times due to the color of his skin. He didn't give up. He continued to study everything he could about aviation. Eventually, he found the Pitts Aviation School that gave him a job doing mechanical and groundwork. And although he wasn't given any flight training, he was able to learn the basics of takeoffs and landings. With the help of friends and relatives, Anderson was able to put together about $2,500 to buy a used plane, a Valley Monocoupe, when he was 22 years old. Even with his own plane, the white-dominated aviation community continued to look down upon him, so he trained and educated himself by reading and observing other professional pilots. A break came when another experienced pilot, Russell Thaw, who didn't have his own plane, began borrowing Charles' plane to travel to Atlantic City to visit his mother. The deal was Charles could ride along and learn as they went, as long as he didn't ask any questions. Thaw refused to instruct him. As Anderson later said, it was taboo for a white man to teach a Negro how to fly. But still, Charles was able to watch and learn. One day, while soloing in his plane, he crashed into a tree. Sixty years later, he would still have the scars across his forehead to remind him of this accident. When his mother saw his wound, she tried to chop up his plane with an axe. About a year after buying his plane, he earned his private pilot's license. But what he really wanted was a commercial air transport license. But getting one wasn't easy, again because of his race. 
In an interview in People magazine in 1988, he said he knew he had to master some fancy flying. He said other pilots would talk around the hangar about tailspins and 360-degree turns, but when I walked up to listen, they'd start talking about something else. So I had to figure things out for myself. The first time I tried a tailspin, I didn't get out of it right away. These guys were surprised to see me come back. Through all the abuse and name-calling he endured, Anderson never gave up his dream and eventually he found someone to become his instructor, German immigrant and World War I pilot Ernest Buell. When he was 92, Buell spoke of those days, saying, in broken English, In them days, a colored man in an airplane, it just never was known. Anderson had been to all the other airports surrounding Philadelphia. People really condemned him and called him names, but, oh boy, how he would like to fly. It was through Brule that Anderson learned to fly flawlessly, and it took Brule to force a federal examiner to give Anderson a commercial pilot's test. When the government agent came, Brule recalled, he took me aside and he called me everything under the sun because I would even attempt to get this man into a plane. I finally tell him, look, I'm a foreigner. I'm a citizen by paper. That guy's born here. I threatened to make a little trouble for this guy, so he finally took him up and kept him up a considerable time longer than a white man. He really put him through the works. At age 25, he became the first black American to receive a Civil Aeronautics Administration air transportation license, aviation's top license at the time, and for many years he was the only black man in the United States to hold it. On June 24, 1932, Anderson married his childhood sweetheart, Gertrude Nelson, and the two would eventually have two sons. Of course, a commercial pilot's license doesn't mean very much if you can't find a job. African Americans were not considered for work when it came to aviation, so to make a living, he was forced to take any job he could. That included being a ditch digger. And it was while he was a ditch digger that he met the man who changed his life. In July of 1933, Charles Anderson met Dr. Albert E. Forsyth, a black physician and a pilot. Forsyth would become his partner and financial supporter. Like Anderson, Forsyth wanted to introduce aviation to other African Americans and show the world that black pilots could do anything white pilots could. They figured the best way to do this was to take on attention-getting journeys, ones that broke records. This would be accomplished by three goodwill flights. One of the most famous was their 1932 transcontinental trip from Atlantic City to Los Angeles and back again. They flew in a Fairchild monoplane called the Pride of Atlantic City. Now, due to a lack of funds, they were not aided by blind flying navigation instruments, radios, landing lights, or even parachutes. For navigation, the pair used a Rand McNally road map until it flew out of Forsyth's hand. At night, they had to hold a flashlight out of the window to see. After two and a half days, they landed to a cheering, mostly black crowd of about 2,000. The next flight was from Atlantic City to Montreal, Canada. They were the first black pilots to fly over the U.S.-Canadian border. This flight was just as successful as the last. And then the third and the last Goodwill flight was a planned Caribbean and Latin American tour. The idea was to visit 25 different countries, carrying with them a scroll to be signed by the government officials in each. When in St. Louis, Missouri, negotiating for a new plane to make their journey, they met the legendary Charles Lindbergh. 
Lindbergh attempted to talk them out of their plans because, allegedly, Lindbergh thought only white men could fly. From what I've heard, Lindbergh had some really controversial views when it came to race, but that's another story for another day. The pair ignored Lindbergh's advice, of course, and went on with their plans. The new Lambert Monocoupe plane was nicknamed the Spirit of Booker T. Washington. The Caribbean trip was their most difficult, with many places having no runways or landing fields. They often had to land on city streets or open fields. When they were forced to land at night due to delays, cars would surround the landing area using their headlights to illuminate a landing strip. They never made it to South America like they planned, however, due to a crash while leaving Trinidad, which ended the tour. But the trip overall was a great success. A parade was held for them when they returned to New Jersey. He was a hero to many young black men in the 1930s. Stories of his long-distance flights made news all over the country. Span Wilson, a former Tuskegee Airman who later worked for the FAA, said, He was the man. He was our star. When the third Goodwill journey was done, Charles and Gertrude were settling down to begin a family. The time of flying all over the world for Anderson was coming to an end. For a while, Anderson worked teaching black high school students in Washington, D.C., and as a flying instructor in Virginia, but that didn't last long. Things in the world were changing with the rise of Hitler and Mussolini. As far as American President Franklin D. Roosevelt was concerned, war wasn't far off. He authorized the Civilian Pilots Training Program to get pilots ready. This program, of course, was only available to white men. But it was through pressure from civil rights organizations, prominent African Americans, and the black press that the administration agreed to allow African American men to participate in the program. Of course, they were segregated into their own group, the now-famed Tuskegee Institute in Tuskegee, Alabama. The university, by the way, was started by Booker T. Washington in 1881. Charles Alfred Anderson Sr. would become the Institute's chief pilot instructor. The nickname Chief stuck, and from that day forward, he would be known as Chief Anderson. But before he could begin, he had to pass a flying test at Curtis Reynolds Airport in Glenview, Illinois. He sat in the training seat in the front, as was customary. Soon he realized something was wrong. He was having trouble executing slow rolls. Without accomplishing this maneuver, he couldn't pass the test. They told me I didn't pass, that I couldn't do the maneuvers well enough, he later said. So I had a black mechanic check out the plane, and he found that the rudder cables had been shortened. Nobody tried to kill me, you understand. They just didn't want me flying. He insisted on moving to the back seat, and in that seat he executed the rolls perfectly. The program began with 22 pilots, and Anderson told the first cadets that it was an experiment designed to fail. He could see the white press come with the purpose of ridiculing the program, like taking pictures of a man playing the piano just so they could write a story about what the men did at Tuskegee, just playing the piano. It was while teaching at the school that the Tuskegee Airmen got a big boost from none other than the wife of President Roosevelt, Eleanor. Eleanor Roosevelt visited the group and met Chief Anderson. Apparently, she told Anderson at one point that she always heard that colored people couldn't fly. 
After being corrected, she told Chief Anderson, against the wishes of the Secret Service, that I'm going to take a flight with you. And after a 40-minute flight with Anderson at the controls, she delightedly exclaimed, Well, I see you can fly, all right. Chief Anderson later said, Mrs. Roosevelt asked me to take her for a flight over the area against the tremendous opposition of her entourage. Mrs. Roosevelt was willing to risk her life with one of us because she saw no reason why blacks could not fly. The flight brought nationwide publicity to the Tuskegee Airmen, especially with the now-famous picture of Mrs. Roosevelt sitting in a two-seater plane with Chief Anderson in the other seat. While the extent of Eleanor Roosevelt's involvement in furthering on what was called the Tuskegee Experiment is unknown, but it is of no doubt that she did talk to the president about her experiences and her belief that these pilots were every bit as qualified as white men. Now this was at a time, even after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and the United States Congress declared war on Japan, Germany, and Italy, that African Americans were only permitted to serve in the military in segregated units. Many still believed that the color of a man's skin had some effect on his ability for important tasks like being a leader or flying a plane. It was only after great pressure that the army brass grudgingly agreed to what they called the Tuskegee Experiment. The Tuskegee Civilian Air Base was converted into the training site for the U.S. Army Air Corps with Chief Anderson as its chief flight instructor. They were held to a much higher standard than perhaps their white counterparts. Of the dozen men in the first class, only five graduated. Maybe it was because the training was so hard that these men turned into such a celebrated elite fighting unit. But I think it's impossible for us to understand just what these men went through. They were not only proving that they could be pilots, leaders, and protectors of their country, but also to prove to the world that many common beliefs and stereotypes about them were just so very wrong. These men knew they were doing something special, not only for them, but for their race. To many in the program, the experiment wasn't established to prove that black Americans could be pilots, but to prove that they couldn't. The group fought proudly and bravely in the European theater of war. But it didn't start out that way. In the early days, the Tuskegee Airmen were given medial jobs. According to General Henry Hep Arnold, Commander General of the U.S. Army Air Forces, one reason for this was that, as he said, Negro pilots could not be used in our present Air Corps since this would result in Negro officers serving over white enlisted men, creating an impossible social situation. But their time did come. In April 1943, they set out for North Africa. This is where they would join the 33rd Fighter Group and its commander, Colonel William J. Mamire. With very little combat advice for those with battle experience, the 99th's first combat mission was to attack the small strategic volcano islands of Pantelleria in the Mediterranean Sea. Their mission was to clear the sea lanes for the Allied invasion of Sicily in July of 1943. The squadron averaged two missions a day. In addition to escorting bombers, the pilots also conducted dive bombing and strafing missions. As the war went on, the men were in charge of guarding bombers on long flight missions, a very important job as the Air Force was losing 25 bombers a day. And since each bomber carried about 10 servicemen, bombing was at a high cost. Once the Tuskegee Airmen began escorting the bombers, casualties were held to a minimum. To make themselves visible as protectors in the air, they began painting their tail section of their planes red 
and therefore began to be known as Red Tails. Over the course of the war, 66 Tuskegee Airmen gave their lives in the war effort, and 32 were captured and became prisoners of war. But this podcast isn't about the Tuskegee Airmen, it's about one of them, Charles Chief Anderson. During his time there, Anderson successfully trained over 1,000 pilots. In addition to pilots, the Tuskegee program trained nearly 14,000 navigators, bombardiers, instructors, aircraft and engine mechanics, control tower operators, and other maintenance and support staff. After the war, he continued to teach aviation to both black and white students. In 1951, he began a flight training program at Monson Field for private students as well as Army and Air Force ROTC cadets. He also provided aircraft and engine maintenance and sold aircrafts in the southeast and southwestern United States. In 1967, Anderson co-founded the Negro Airmen's International, the nation's oldest African-American pilot organization, which established a summer flight academy for youths interested in aviation, and he continued to instruct students until 1989. He continued to fly regularly three or four times a week until he was well into his 80s. In 1991, he recreated the Caribbean Goodwill Trip, 59 years after the original, as a birthday present to himself. But soon after that, in the early 90s, his health began to decline and it forced him to retire from flying. He died peacefully in his sleep on April 13, 1996, in Tuskegee, Alabama. During his later life, he received numerous awards, but one of the most prestigious was on October 4, 2013. Anderson was enshrined into the National Aviation Hall, the highest honor for any pilot. On March 13, 2014, the United States Postal Service released a stamp commemorating Alfred Chief Anderson. The stamp is the 15th stamp in the Distinguished American series. Quoting Wikipedia, Anderson never sought fame, recognition, or fortune for his accomplishments, yet he touched the lives of thousands of pilots, both civilian and military, many of whose names are found throughout aviation history books. In 1941, some of the finest American fighter pilots took on the fight for a double victory against oppression abroad and racism at home. They call themselves Red Tails. It was my duty and responsibility my father did and my grandfather did, that the country's in trouble. You do what you have to do. We're as patriotic as anybody else. We wanted our chance to prove that we could do something. Your nation calls on you to die for your country and you can't even sit down in a restaurant. It's not a pleasant feeling when you look and think, what am I volunteering to die for? I really didn't care whether it was segregated or not. I wanted to fly. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old goal and listen to the sad sack. So, a little bit before I go. There is a 1988 People magazine article that has an interview with Chief Anderson. He mentions that racism didn't stop after World War II. Right after the war, he said, none of the pilots in the 332nd could get employment as flyers. Even now, little has changed. Out of the 50,000 commercial pilots in America, fewer than 200 are black. Whites just assume the whole field of aviation is theirs. It's like I tell my students, the closer you get to an airport, the whiter it gets. 
well, let's just hope things have changed a little since 1988, and hopefully they're still changing, right? You know, I found very little in media about Chief Anderson, but there's quite a bit about the Tuskegee Airmen. There's an interesting 1945 promotional film called Wings for This Man, narrated by Ronald Reagan. It's available on YouTube. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. In 1995, HBO presented the Tuskegee Airmen starring Larry Fishburne. The History Channel had an episode of their documentary TV series Dogfights about the Tuskegee Airmen in 2007. God, remember when the History Channel used to focus on history? And of course, there was the film Red Tails in 2012 from Lucasfilm. I have never seen it, but I've heard that it's a good film, but it's a Hollywoodized version of the true story, if you know what I mean. Anyway, there are plenty of places to learn about the Tuskegee Airmen if you're interested in that at all. And now, how about the ending credits? You know, to host podcasting, well, it's not free. It costs money, and uh, we at SciCon could use a little help in keeping these things going. We need help from listeners like you, so why don't you be one of the good people and support us by visiting SciCon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm, and look for the Patreon link at the top. And a sincere thank you to everybody who already supports the show. Speaking of SciCon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find many amazing podcasts. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that I would love for you to join. Your story ideas are always welcome. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review or a few stars or something. Those really help. And remember, all the links to the sources that I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, to my wife of 34 years for being my wife of 34 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost this on social media. You folks will always have a special place in my heart. I'll be back in two weeks. Bye-bye. With Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. With Jeff. Coffee with Jeff.
years go by and life's filled with change Sometimes your plans get rearranged He's seen it all and he's weathered it too So just wants to have some coffee with you Coffee with Jeff Coffee on Coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee, coffee, coffee.